0: Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you are listening to The Reese Show. On the show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. (laughs) You can leave us a five-star review, you can tell your friends, you can name your first child Reese, Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our root forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Today I do a delightful interview with the internet linguist Lauren Gaughan, we chat about how she's added emoji, and also some constructed languages that she's made. So enjoy the episode, and as always, I have a longer reflection at the end. Thanks. Today, I'm speaking with Lauren Gon. Lauren is a linguistics lecturer at La Trobe University, and she's a key part of Linguistics Twitter and the ongoing study of internet language. I'm so excited to interview her. Lauren, thanks for being on the show, and welcome.
1: Thanks, Rhys. Always happy yeah, to- Yeah, I'm uh, excited to dive in. Yeah, happy to always talk about linguistics, so- Right.
0: And it's funny for me because I'm I'm kind of excited by linguistic stuff, but I've never actually had a linguist on the show, and so you're going to be my first. So when I mess things up, um, I request your um, uh, patience with me, I guess.
1: That's totally okay. We're all we're all learning all the time, is my theory. I'm always learning exactly. new things about linguistics too.
0: Um, yeah. So today we're going to chat a little bit about kind of emojis in the internet language world, and then we'll transition into some of the constructed languages stuff you've done, and then finally end with a discussion about like the linguistics online community that you built. But let's first start with the like emojis and internet language side. Mm -hmm. I know that you recently submitted a three of these like 35 new emojis um, for the upcoming Unicode 14, uh, you know, new standard. Tell me more about like which emojis you submitted and what that process was like. Sure. Well,
1: we submitted these proposals probably about a year ago, which gives you an idea of how, well, we submitted them around a year ago. They've been accepted as draft candidates, which means they will be hopefully in Unicode. They'll be in Unicode um, 14, 14 which will be out in 2021. Uh, no, 2022 maybe. So uh, it is an incredibly slow process. Um, in terms of Unicode it is a a massive organization and they are creating things that are meant to be permanent uh, which is not a thing people talk about a lot on the internet this idea of permanence and so uh, the wheels of Unicode turn very slowly but we I I submitted proposals for four emoji actually only three made it through to this Mm. round Um, we I submitted these along with my podcast co-host Gretchen McCulloch and uh Jennifer Daniel who is a uh designer at Google um together we submitted a proposal for uh a face a little peeking face peeking out behind uh some hands which I think is uh kind of a a good 2020 car crash mood (laughs) um (laughs) one I'm planning on using a lot and then um two that perhaps by themselves don't immediately appear very exciting, but we have a palm up hand and a palm down hand. And the great thing about these two are that you will now be able to offer someone some cake, or you will finally be able to get that mic drop happening.
0: Mm, nice, nice, nice. Yeah. So the palm up is like, here's some cake and the palm down is like a mic drop vibe. Yeah. Make is it that, rain what money. Was, exactly. What was the, um, And it's just so interesting to propose something for Unicode and like to, like you will have perhaps a creation of a new language and a new emoji for all of us in the world. So I guess first, thank you for doing that and putting in that effort. What kind of, well, Hey, which one was rejected?
1: Oh, and then our fourth little uh, proposal, which is not rejected. It is just Mm. uh, sitting within this kind of collection of things that, uh, met sufficient criteria to not be rejected, but didn't meet the kind of, I guess, threshold of, of probable usage for this round of uh, proposals. So it may appear in the future. But it's a little raised indexed finger. Um, I, I don't know if that has any particular meaning for you, Reese?
0: Maybe it means, like, uh, good question. I think it means, like, either, like, shh, or maybe a little bit like a raising your hand thing. One of those two, perhaps? Oh, sorry.
1: I said index, didn't I? Raised pinky. Oh, thank raised
0: you. Raising middle finger. We already have finger. raised
1: index finger. No, raised uh, little finger. Pinky. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> this is the challenge of talking about uh, gestures on podcasts, is that I often I'm doing the correct gesture and then saying something completely
0: made up (laughs) raised pinky finger. That's interesting. I don't, I associate that with like drinking Mm -hmm. a, um, a nice beverage, but like pretending to be classy. Uh, and beyond that, I don't really know what else it means. What, what does it mean?
1: Yeah. So we, in the proposal note that it has a kind of connotation of tea drinking, uh, potentially by extension tea spilling. Um, it can also mean uh, that someone, it, it is a, a symbol of emasculation to uh, show this gesture to a man. Um, in some cultures, uh, in Australia, there was a very funny traffic campaign where people use this gesture at people doing antisocial driving behaviour um, <laughs> to nice. undermine uh, that behaviour. Um, but uh, my other favourite reason for including this and something that I think uh, has been missing historically in the first couple of sets of Emoji, and then groups like Emoji Nation have been trying to fix the kind of very narrow cultural focus on kind of Western American culture. Uh, But uh, raised pinky finger across India, which, you know, is 1.2 billion people, um, Mm -hmm. is a sign for I need to use the toilet.
0: Hmm. Yes. I do kind of remember. I I lived in India for a bit and I was thinking something like that. Okay. But yeah, that's interesting. That is there a, uh, well, I'm sorry that that one didn't get in, but I, I appreciate the the effort. What was the, like for you all, as you were starting to create these, mm-hmm. did you have, did you brainstorm a big old list of possible ones and then submit a couple and how, yeah, like what, why these three?
1: This came out of, um, I had not intended to submit proposals for emoji, I I have to confess, but I was doing some work with Gretchen McCulloch, who is a full-time internet linguist, um, and she was writing her book because internet um, and was writing the chapter on emoji. And she was looking at all the different ways people actually use emoji because there's a lot of talk about how people think emoji are used, but when we look at how they use, there's lots of like common functions. And she sent me a draft of this chapter and I was like, oh it's very interesting. A lot of what you're talking about has overlaps with um, how people use gestures alongside speech, which is one of my areas of research. And so I, I was like, this is interesting, but go and read all these gesture books. And I just got this flood of questions back from her as I was, uh, as, as she was working through this. And it came together as a research article we wrote, um, basically hypothesizing or, or putting forward this argument that emoji are to written text, what gestures are to spoken language. In terms of how they function um, so that was the research and there's a um there's a full academic article there's a much more chatty version of it in Gretchen's book um in which I get to feature in a cameo uh we have um also some summary uh posts on that work but then it kind of led us full circle to well what kind of gestures could be turned into emoji to make the set of emoji that currently exist more communicatively useful. And that's how um, we came to write these proposals.
0: Yeah. I love that. I think that there's a, it's like, Hey, we're using, if we're using emoji as gesture, if that's the hypothesis and not just as um, you know, like, Oh, here's an object, like here's a box and here's a pillow or whatever. It's like, and myself, when I think about like my most used emojis, they're not just like random objects. Mm. They are more gestural. And so, yeah, uh, yeah I'm excited to have the uh, palm up emoji when I am offering something to someone. Because yeah. that is a gesture that I do often in real life.
1: It's moving away from something I call the emoji as menu fallacy, where you want every kind of food and beverage and animal as emoji because you think they have to operate as a kind of menu. Whereas when we look at how people use emoji, it's to communicate... Moods and kind of more abstract concepts than just uh, a particular animal.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cat, french fry, etc. Yeah. cetera. So, so do you think, I'm thinking about like emojis and, and internet stuff over time. I like, one thing that I think about, I kind of zooming out from emojis specifically, I think that, you know, I'm thinking about like how language is changing on the internet more generally and, um, you know, things, I guess, I guess for you, just to start more generally, do you think, how do you see internet language changing and how do you see, um, you know, in the last couple of years or, or as you've been deeper in on this world, how, how do you see it changing and how do you see it continuing to change as we go forward?
1: I think we'll always continue to change because different, Communities will come together, and if there's one thing that really helps create a community, is having a way of speaking that is easily and immediately identifiable as different to all those pesky outsiders. Um, So, I think as long as the internet is a place where we come together as communities, different communities will adopt different ways of being uh, playful with their language because it is, you know, we don't immediately access each other's kind of physical appearance. We can't do it with the way we dress, um, so we can use the the way we speak. And I, um, I now think of this as very um, vintage meme work, but I did some work uh, almost 10 years ago with a colleague, Jill Vaughan, on uh, the linguistics of lolspeak. And that was very much about a community of people deliberately playing with language to show um this kind of playful sense and attitude
0: yeah that's interesting i think and it's a really helpful and just in like my own work these like signaling mechanisms that people can use with each other uh i used to work in the cryptocurrency world and one thing that they did in that world was change the word hold like hold on to your cryptocurrency even if it's going down or whatever they just changed it there was like a misspelling one time where they swatched or sorry swapped the l and the d so it's hodl h-o-d-l and the community loves it. Um, and then there was a second one where instead of saying, where people were saying, hey, let's like build more applications and more, you know, good technology for people, they changed the L and the D in build. They changed it to be bid, all, And so thinking of those as like, they're essentially just in group signifiers, or it's like, do you mm-hmm. know the, the thing that everybody's talking about? Do Absolutely. Think, yeah. I mean, and, and as you think about this, is there a. Like, do you have any favorite like How do I even say that word? Neologisms. Ne- Neologisms. Neologisms. Thank you. Yeah. How do you? How, do you have any favorite new words? What favorite new words do you have?
1: Oh gosh, um, that is a great question. Uh, I. Uh, this is where I. I feel very. Uh, out of a lot of, I'm like there is amazing language happening on Twitch streams that goes straight over my head. Um I feel like HODL was one that I kind of followed around for a while. The great thing about something like HODL and then extending it to something like Biddle is that uh so that's a form of metathesis where you switch the letters around. Mm. Um, but it creates something that's actually relatively hard to say in English. Um, and that becomes part of. I, I mean, if linguistics is good at anything, it's absolutely destroying a meme through overanalysis. Um, so watching people kind of deliberately and playfully tie their, themselves into knots and the like—you know—we do spend most of our time on the internet interacting in text, and so you can do that, and then trying to translate it into speech is another layer of, of the play there. Um, but you know, I'm not—I'm not on TikTok. I don't. I don't know what the, I don't. I only know what's happening on TikTok when it like filters over to Twitter for yeah, me. Yeah, so yeah. there is so much great stuff happening. And often when I speak to, you know, university classrooms or even high school students about internet language, I'm like, you are actually the expert. I can give you the linguistic tools that you can then take into the communities that you know. And you know what's happening with this language and the density of reference and play far better than I ever could so I like it when people bring great examples to me and I can be like oh this is the really cool linguistic thing that's happening there
0: (laughs) nice yeah yeah and I I just learned about the thing that you said about Biddle versus Hoddle and and how yeah when Biddle first came out it was like yeah should we call it Bildle or but and it was kind of annoying to say and then eventually the community like uh, came around and said, okay, it's going to be called Biddle, you know, and that's how people started to say it. But that had to be like agreed upon by everyone.
1: Yeah, and that's in how more... you build a community.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, in, in and more maybe like ser- eh, moving towards more seriousness is so I think that some of these words of the year in various dictionaries mm-hmm. are cool takes on like where language is heading. Mm-hmm. And I guess generally speaking, the reason why I'm so excited by some of these linguistics things is because it's part of. You know, our language is just like the most deep down primitive way that we can understand how our mindsets are changing with respect to the world. And so, I think that some of these new, um, just pulling out some of the words of the year from recent times, there is like two big, two of the big buckets. I just want to highlight here. Mm-hmm. One of them is around kind of social justice activism, and you know, we have they, the you know, third person. Uh, you know a plural pronoun or yeah. singular pronoun in the sense um, hashtag me too hashtag Black Lives Matter cancel culture mansplaining um, and then like the the phrase like my pronouns um, and on the other side of like lots and lots of information there's kind of post-truth as a word and then fake news and like info as a word and I guess my question is just for either of those do you see you know, for the, for the world of like, you know, social justice activism and, and, you know, just seeing like the rise of like a- anti-racism as a word, how do you kind of see, is there a way to understand like the rise of, of words that are coming up within that world?
1: Um, I think it's one of those things where the words can't ever be removed from the context that they arise in. And I think mm-hmm. being, curious about words and how people use them is inherently about being curious about the world and the world that we live in and you know I think for all the times that it is amazing that people now have words to express um, their kind of discontent with the way things are set up well we'll use language all the time to be absolutely horrific to people as well as much as I'm like it's so great that language is this wonderful community building thing, sometimes the, the way we exclude people is, is really horrible or the way we, you know, force people. I'm in Australia, uh, we have a long history in this country of um, white settlers coming in and completely destroying the incredible diversity of Australian languages in terms of uh, numbers of speakers and the vitality of those languages. We went from over 250 languages in Australia to barely 20 of them being vibrantly spoken today. You know, that's a a very direct representation of how language can be controlled and oppressed. And um, I think finding ways to to articulate uh, the way these injustices are perpetrated is um, a step towards finding better ways to kind of all live together and, and reconcile uh, a lot of hurt and a lot of conflict.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that there is, yeah, the languages are a representation of reality. And so as we get better at describing uh, the hurt and the injustices that the language can kind of reflect that. And I'm thinking, I mean, just for me, something like anti-racism is a powerful, because I remember when I was in college, the kind of metaphor of the, you know, escalator or like the, you know, someone on a, someone like me, a, you know, rich, white, straight American guy on a um, moving pathway, a moving walkway, while other folks with less privilege were on one that was like moving backwards, or it's like, I was just being, you know, shown all the doors that I wanted open all the time. And so to think of my own actions in response to that is like, the word anti is really powerful. It's like, I can't just be by being, you know, chill and doing whatever, I'm just, I'm complicit within it. And so I have to actively be anti there. So I think it's a powerful, uh, a, a powerful way to view this. Do you have any thoughts on the kind of explosion of information on the internet, and then the rise of words like post-truth and fake news and infovore, um or any other new ones in that space?
1: I think the internet has certainly added an additional dynamic to uh, media consumption. I'm I personally like I will do no research on this, but I'm really interested in um, a recurring motif in the very problematic QAnon conspiracy type things of doing your own research, and um, that often means consuming a bunch of pre-created YouTube content that is deliberately targeted to reinforcing particular worldviews. And I think about how different that is to doing your own research as an academic and going to primary materials and coming up with hypotheses and testing them. And um, I just think that one thing this internet proliferation of news has shown us is uh, that we do need to teach ourselves to be more literate and more wary without being kind of sceptical of people and their intentions, but being skeptical of the news we consume, I mean, I also just think individuals aren't going to solve the problem of things like fake news um, just because of the the scale of it. But um, it's certainly an interesting era to be navigating. And I feel really grateful to have had an education, but also a kind of perspective on things that allows me to uh, kind of approach all the news I consume, whether it's from a mainstream media outlet or um, a random blog with a, a degree of uh, critical insight.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that, and I and I, I feel similarly grateful there. And I think that there's a. Yeah, it's kind of an ability to instead of just view the content itself, to kind of view all the meta stuff around it, around what kind of uh, framing are they using and what site, you know, is it on and what's the bias and those kinds of things. Yeah. It makes me think of... Um, this, this world of um, like emotive conjugation or Russell conjugations where you take a word, um, something like uh, back in the day it was a global warming and then, then it was like, oh no, let's make it more chill, like climate change. It's like, it's not bad, it's just that climate is changing and now there's like the other flip of that which is like, no, this is a climate crisis. And so just for me when I'm like viewing things on the internet, trying to like view each word and see like which like emotive conjugations it's trying to use, is there a way like for either listeners or or is there a way to kind of I would love for there to be like embedded within our you know sense making world for there to be this kind of like language level you know conjugations of words that showed people which emotions were being used or something like that does that uh strike you as interesting or does that have any legs to it
1: (laughs) yeah I think it's where um I, I would say take a higher level semantics course as an undergraduate. It's it's great in so semantics is the study of word meaning and as part of that we look at um the the sense of a word. So it's denotation, what it kind of what we could point to and say that is that thing but we also look at the connotation of words and what it evokes as you said in terms of emotion or what other words it links to um you know having words that have more um kind of uh emotive uh kind of connotations uh that kind of play on fear or that that downplay the kind of um links to other more negatively valenced emotions um, are all choices that people make and then um, you kind of combine that information that you get from the semantics with an understanding of pragmatics which is understanding how people use these meanings in context and when you look at pragmatics you're looking at um, you know what is my stance what am I trying to do in terms of the kind of emotive effect I'm trying to convey what am I kind of, what is my information state? Do we have an information asymmetry? Am I kind of withholding information potentially, or um, am I deliberately feeding things to you slowly to make you more compelled? Um, This kind of, uh, yeah, I I feel like this is one of those times where I'm I'm grateful to have that linguistics training.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Is there, so if I'm hearing that correctly, there's the semantic side, which is the denotation versus connotation, and the connotation is kind of the um, – yeah, the place where – I mean, they're both weaponizable or whatever, but the connotation is especially, like, possible to integrate in that kind of emotive content. Yeah, And absolutely. then the pragmatic side – I almost get that, but I, so it's like, is it kind of like the goal of the, of the speaker or writer or kind of, or to tell me more about, I, I didn't quite under, get the, what pragmatics and how that's different than semantics.
1: Semantics, we tend to think of as the study of meaning kind of without bothering too much with context, just, mm-hmm. um, you know, if I... If we talk about birds, we, we all have a, a concept of what the most bird-like bird is. Um, and then if I, you know, we talk about penguins, we have a very specific idea of what a penguin is. Um, penguins are technically birds, but they may not fit into the centre of our kind of understanding of what a bird is. Um, and, you know, we can do all of that without thinking about context. If we think about um, pragmatics, which is meaning in context, that's mm-hmm. where we start to get a whole lot more baggage because we can use um, kind of uh, kind of our cultural differences around what is polite or impolite to talk about. Um, I can do things like um, I can ask you a question, but it's not really a question. It's um, more of a I'm actually asking you to do something. So, you know, if I if I asked your listeners, um, could, could you subscribe to this podcast and and rate it on iTunes? Uh, you're not literally asking them if they can pull up their app or pull up the iTunes listing. Um, you're, you're really like telling them to do something. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, we kind of, I always love semantics and pragmatics because you kind of teach students, you know, a, a question has this kind of grammatical structure and then suddenly in the real world, you go, oh, people are using things that look like questions, but they're really making statements all the time. And um, when you actually look at how language gets used in context, that's where all the, the fun messiness comes in.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. So the pragmatics is the meaning in context. And that's when you, yeah, you yeah. take the word like climate crisis or climate change or whatever, and you're like, okay, it's embedded within a certain you know article or a certain kind of Uh, Yeah. Goal of the reader or the listener and and that that kind of or certain images that are in the screen and that changes their their uh, how they receive the the meaning as well. Yeah. Um, So is there this makes me think about kind of the second big topic today around constructed languages and the work. uh, And so for readers that don't or for listeners that don't know it's great. You know, there's this whole world of um, languages that you can construct from scratch uh, instead of just allowing them to evolve naturally, like, you know, English or Hindi or whatever. And um, Lauren has actually done a, made a constructed languages. So could you tell us about the language you made and and what it was like to make it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, part of my day job is documenting and describing the grammar of languages where people have not done this before. Um, Especially, I'm particularly interested in Tibetan varieties that are spoken in Nepal. And um, to do this work, you kind of spend a lot of your time going, I can see what they're saying. I have a literal translation, but I'm trying to figure out what the grammar is doing. And so um, as a hobby, it's kind of relaxing to be (laughs) the benevolent overlord of a language. And you go, I will create the verbs so they're set up like this and I know exactly what is happening because I put this together um so I think I think in some ways it's just a uh, a way for me to kind of uh relax and and take control of a, a project in a way that I you know absolutely love the messiness of figuring out what's happening in a in a real language that is created by as you say the kind of ongoing evolutionary process of a community speaking it um, so language construction is um, – some people love it as a, a form of art. Some people use it as a form of experimentation to push what's possible with human language or just with language. Um, some people have uh, interest in it in its own right. Uh, I have enjoyed creating specifically um, the Aramtescan language for the um, – fantasy world of p.m freestone's shadow scent books um so this is a world where a lot of the social construction uh and the world and the religion are built around um smell and the sense of smell and scent and so for me it was a really fun challenge to do a lot of things that are very much like a natural language but then also be really playful in terms of kind of doing things that we know don't happen in natural languages. People don't tend to prioritize their sense of scent, but um, across the vocabulary and across the grammar, I've really made that more more central. I guess no pun intended, um, and in how I've I've constructed that language. So that's been um, a lot of fun to work really closely with an author as they're building. A world and a narrative.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I think that it is uh well a the first thing to note is the Tibetans in Nepal. I actually I studied abroad in Nepal in twenty eleven with uh Tibetan folks. And so you probably cool. are you are you in Bodanath or where are you in the <laughs> which regions are you studying folks?
1: there are lots of Tibetans in Bodanath, that's true. true, yeah. Um the Tibetan languages kind of spill all the way across the Himalaya, and so yeah. um nepal as a country as you will know but if you want to visualize it and you don't have an atlas to hand just think of a a long thin country and all the way along the kind of top northeastern boundary are the himalayas um and people have been traversing uh them absolutely mind-boggling for hundreds and hundreds of years um you have tibetan which is spoken in tibet um there is standard tibetan but then you've had centuries and centuries of migration to Nepal. So you have all these smaller languages that are related to Tibetan, but languages in their own right. So I guess kind of a bit like the English, Dutch, German situation. Some of them are more mutually intelligible, more understandable between them. Um, and these communities are dotted all the way up and down um, Nepal, Bhutan, which is just below Nepal, up and around to the kind of Pakistan, um and of course uh in India as well so um it's a a large-ish family of languages and um I work across a few communities that are all part of a language group called the the Yolmo language
0: hmm. cool yeah I think the uh I mean I remember just a small thing that I remember from it was uh trekking around Mustang, where they have... And it's there's so many different... Because it's so mountainous there, Mm -hmm. you have all these communities that are kind of isolated from one another. And so in maybe like a Great Plains situation or whatever, you would get more language integration. But because these folks were in like different valleys, there was less uh, integration between the languages. And so there's more difference between them. Um, So uh, that's... Yeah, and I think, as you note here, the nice thing about constructed languages is that you can create them as quote-unquote simply or you know as you know it's like there's so much messiness in the in real life (laughs) do you think that there is a I mean it makes me think of like constructed languages and some of the conversations we had about you know emojis and other internet language things it's weird because constructed languages like none of them have been successful um but like I guess do you see there being a you know some amount of constructed languages or some amount of like iterative, constructive design that, you know, eventually gets integrated into human speech somehow, or human language?
1: I'm going to, uh, debate the premise of your question, if that's okay. Oh
0: great. Yes, that's perfect. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I could be super wrong.
1: I assume by successful, you mean have been taken up by a population of speakers?
0: Hmm. Uh, yes, by construct, by, yes, that is what I mean. Like <laughs> Esperanto, only 2000 people speak it or whatever. Yeah.
1: So... First of all, two thousand people speaking a language is amazing, and actually, <laughs> like relatively high if you look at the long tail of populations of human languages. As English speakers, we're very used to the idea of hundreds of millions of people speaking a language, but you can have a relatively stable and very flourishing language with, you know, one or two thousand speakers if the language is not facing external economic or social pressure um, mm-hmm. from kind of the. The linguistic environment. So, you know, Esperanto, I think part of why we see it as not a success is that it had grander aspirations of itself. Um, a language like Aram that I created, I have no real desire to see a population of speakers for this language. I mean, I'm sure like any conlanger would be delighted to see their language spoken by a group of people. But um, for me, the really key thing was giving PM Freestone another tool with which to build a really rich world and a really rich story, um, and that was part of creating this language. I think um, you know, in some ways, a language like um, Dothraki or Valyrian has been quite successful, where lexical items from and, and words and phrases from these languages have entered. Uh, common parlance and the worlds and the language that were created have have entered the kind of cultural zeitgeist
0: yeah yeah I, I agree that and I, I, I thank you for rejecting my premise <laughs> that, that what is this and and uh, I agree that your language itself I mean it, in reading about it and looking at the kind of um, using it as a tool for the author and then also this whole concept of you know, scent based, um, you know, s- yeah, all the ways that you can incorporate scent and smell into uh, both grammar constructions and also just kind of like metaphors and things like that is really cool. I do think I do want to push on my question a little bit, though, sure. I, um, because um, I guess that there's a uh, well, I don't know. There's kind of a couple perspectives here. One is the like sadness around the, you know, extinction or uh, of many languages around the world. Um, And the other is this excitement around, oh, my God, it's so cool that we have Chinese and Hindi and um, English and all these things that lots of people around the world speak. And as the world gets more kind of, you know, globalized and as we can connect with each other, it's amazing to have these languages. And I guess I just see there being a – and there's also this beautiful thing of like, okay, now that we can understand more about how language works – oh, maybe we can create some kind of beautiful constructed language that allows, and, and, and create it not in like, oh, we're going to create a parallel world here, but like level it up or iterate it from English and Chinese and Hindi or whatever to make it easier for translation or for typing or for learning. And so I guess I have a dream that that there will be one global language that's super easy to learn and you just matrix it into your brain as a child. And I know that that's not true, but is there... Um, is there a possibility for like iterative but actively constructed language growth or something like that?
1: I think this seems very tempting uh, because, (laughs) uh, you know, it's like finding a food that is cheap and delicious and completely nutritious (laughs) as well. You know, it's, it's up there with the, the full meal in a pill kind of, um, we want everything to be very clean and orderly. And when we actually look at language, the, all of those fun things about, um, you know, how people use it in context and all those connotations, that messiness is just part of the actual incredible elegance of the design of language. And we know that as soon as Esperanto gained a sufficiently large community of speakers, all of the inelegance that Zamenhof really loathed in languages and tried to construct out of Esperanto um, came back in (laughs) because Mm -hmm. that's what happens when you have a group of people and and language is one of the best iterative design things that we have every generation iterates on it it creates words that it needs it innovates you know something like singular they is amazing because Pronouns are what we call a closed class of words. It's actually really hard to create new words. It's very easy to create a new noun, create a new verb, do it all the time. But to create a new word and a new meaning within a closed class, the fact that a group of speakers decided to iterate on English and make it more specifically useful um, is a great example of iterative design. It's just that part of what makes language so amazing can feel really frustrating when you are trying to wade through uh, connotation sometimes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think that the, <laughs> the dream of some kind of food that you want that's, and then what you end up with is, um, that soylent. disgusting, soylent, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. up with soylent.
1: Like, do you really want to be speaking the soylent of languages? Uh uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. Yeah, it sounds, mm-hmm. uh, I want everybody to be speaking it, but I personally don't really want to. <laughs> you um, take all the
1: fun out of it.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. And I, and I do think, I guess so what, I'm, what I'm saying here is maybe, uh, so I agree with all of what you're saying. And I think that there's a version of, you know, like this, you know, the the singular they being a, great example and and the emoji work that you're doing as great examples of us doing, and you could call it, you know, you call it just iterative language, you know, emergence, or you could call it like, you know, top-down language design or something. But I do think there is, I just, I'm excited for there to be more... Active uh, experimentation with language changing, and um, yeah, I, I Yep, yeah, see how that evolves over time. In any case, the final thing I want to chat about here today mm-hmm. is the um, your the community that you've created with uh, the linguistics community or LingCOM, um, and you have this great podcast with over a thousand patrons. And I guess tell me just like how you think about you know uh, this community, this hashtag LingCOM community, and. Mm-hmm. And growing it, and especially, I'm excited to hear about these grants that you all have given to folks.
1: Hmm. Okay. Uh, I think the the short answer to what is happening here is that I uh, really like linguistics, and <laughs> um, I part of the appeal of you know why I stayed around after my undergraduate degree um, was that I love chatting to linguists. I think they're really fun group of nerds who, um, you know, to study language requires you to be curious about people and the world. And so um, part of my work has always been interested in, you know, going really deep on really specific bits of grammar in Tibetan languages or going really deep into how people are using gestures in a particular conversation. But part of what I've been really interested in is taking all of this cool stuff that I learn and sharing it with a wider community. And so that's been really, you know, central to uh, my interests. Even during my PhD, I started the Superlinguo blog. That's been going for almost a decade now, um, which is like 10,000 years in the internet world. <laughs> um, and it's that was just a space to share my interest in cool things that I learnt as I was working. Um, And so I perhaps unsurprisingly gravitated towards the linguistics community on Twitter, which is, um, you know, a lot of academic linguists, a lot of academic linguistics students, but also people who um, studied linguistics and now work in a whole variety of industries and is a really lovely space. And that kind of those conversations I was having in departments or at conferences, but on a kind of global, twenty-four hour level, um, which is fabulous. And it was through that community that I met Gretchen McCulloch, who um, was also interested in this communication of linguistics. Um, and we met online. We met up at a couple of conferences and realized that the just talking about linguistics on Twitter naturally transferred to talking about linguistics uh, face-to-face. And I think it was at about, you know, 3 a.m. at one conference after talking for like three days straight that we were like, it'd be fun to do a podcast, (laughs) Um, which, you know, brought in uh, some of my background in community radio from my undergrad days. And so I was really excited at that prospect. And I kind of tell this story because this whole project and where we're at now um, so there's the Lingthusiasm podcast. Um, it has, as you said, around a thousand patrons. We have a, a Discord server for those patrons. We also have the general linguistics community on Twitter. And we're both passionate about the fact that there are still so many people who get to learn about linguistics or want to keep in touch with um, their kind of interests from their degree Um, And, you know, you can be a fan of linguistics in the way that, you know, you could be a fan of art and go to museums um, or you could be a fan of sport, I'm told. Um, And we wanted to help build that idea that there could be this space. So the LingCom grants, it's actually linguistics communication. um, Um, But I do like that it also could be linguistics community because we do... Very much in a like not a gross top-down build-a-production company media empire kind of way, but we created these grants of five hundred US dollars uh last year um and funded for projects for people doing cool linguistics communication to new audiences. And it was very much built on the model of the Awesome Foundation grants, if that's a thing you're familiar mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. where it's yeah. just five hundred dollars. You've got a cool idea. There's no strings attached. We're not going to, you know, demand to see those six podcast episodes or whatever you promised. Um, But we also did a lot of, um, or, you know, an amount of uh, catching up with people and helping them plan out and talk through their ideas. And all four of those grantees, um, I can send you the link to the website where we've put a little summary and all of their projects are happening and it's so exciting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I love, yeah, and I'll definitely link to that uh, for the listeners. I think it's so cool. And the person, the Austin Foundation, uh, the one of the co-founders of that, Tim Huang, has been on my podcast. And we've chatted about Austin Foundation then. And I think it is, is such an amazing, I just love this model of having a Patreon where you all, and I don't know, we don't need to go into like the percentages that go to y'all versus to the grantees, but it's just a cool thing where what you're mostly doing is acting as kind of like a shelling point for folks where you say, hey, if you give us some money, yeah, some of it will go to us, but some of it's also going to fund these grants for people in the community to do stuff. And so it's this really cool kind of like, you know, self-tax or like letting the money flow through you perspective where you're just kind of like building out the community with these grants. So I think that's just so cool. And I would love to see more people on Patreon do that, which is to like give grants to more community members. The other thing that I think I really love about it is that Um, This is a a quote from you on Twitter, which I think is cool. And you say, hey, the quote says, sometimes people tell me about other LingCom projects and they sound really worried, like, oh, this is competition I should be worried about. But in reality, more good LingCom is good for everybody. I'm more worried about there not being enough. And I think that mindset is great. Could you tell me a little bit more about like the (laughs) underlying? Because in theory, it's like, oh, there's this other LingCom project, like you should be worried, like you're going to lose patrons or whatever.
1: Yeah, I'm really uh, interested in – I and I say this like I I've never been interested in marketing. And then once I realised my interest was how do I market this thing that I think is cool and this way of analysing language in the world that I think is really useful, how do I market that? And as soon as I started reading – kind of marketing and business development literature through the lens of how do I get more people interested in linguistics, I've become weirdly interested in uh, kind of marketing theory, and the I guess the theory behind that tweet is that, you know, as I said, I think people there should be space for people to be fans of linguistics, and I don't want them to just be a fan of linguistics through listening to my podcast. I want them to feel like there is a whole ecosystem and, you know, I'm not competing with other linguistics podcasts. I'm not even really competing with other, like, nerd content. We're out there competing with, like, food documentaries on Netflix and, you know, scrollings through TikTok endlessly. That's That's who we're competing with.
0: Yeah, and 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 the hope is that yeah, the uh, scrolling endlessly on TikTok first is listening to a nice educational podcast about you know uh, linguistics. It's like you only you can choose. Um, I'm super well, thank excited
1: you- for the person who uh, starts a really banging TikTok linguistics account. I am.
0: That maybe, is, that is
1: what will get me on there.
0: Yeah, that's funny. Um I think I agree and I think I would not be surprised if it already exists or or we'll learn about it soon. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see that. Um well th- with that uh thank you so much today for coming on the show Lauren. Uh, I really I do thank you again for making emojis for all of us and I know that um uh, I wish, you know, give you all the internet points (laughs) for that. Um, And then thank you for your pushback as well on the constructed languages. And I especially enjoyed how you uh, connected language to humanity the whole time, which is like being curious about language means being curious about humans. So is there a place that folks can, uh, where can folks find you on Twitter or or your podcast?
1: Yeah, I am on Twitter as Superlinguo uh, because I started hanging out there as the blog and then slowly de-anonymized. So, uh, the, the blog is superlinguo at uh, the Twitter is superlinguo. And then the podcast is Lingthusiasm because we are enthusiastic about linguistics.
0: Woo! Yay. Um, and so am I. So th- again, thank you for coming on the show today, Lauren, and, uh, have a good week.
1: Thanks so much, Reese. <laughs>
0: Okie okay dokie, hope you enjoyed that episode. I have two big thoughts here, and the first is on this category of, you know, the funniness of this interview, where I was kind of being techno-utopian, and like, oh, we can make this new language that everybody can learn quickly and we'll everybody can chat in it and it will t- change our minds to be better <laughs> instead of being, you know, evil or racist or whatever. And Lauren is like, yeah, that's like a dream, but that's not how language actually evolves. And so I just wanted to highlight yeah, that, that tension. And I think that it's true. I mean, I think that Lauren is mostly correct. Oh, I think that there's a big opportunity here and I want to kind of talk a little bit more about that in this bonus section to, to kind of vocal process. So yeah, you can kind of imagine this, and I would call this thing something like intentional language iteration or applied language evolution. And the idea is that if you have constructed languages on one end of the spectrum where you're making something new like Esperanto and you have something just like natural language evolution on the other side where people are you know coming up with new words randomly or whatever, there's something in the middle here which is an intentional iteration of language that where we kind of like... I think about this like cultural evolution, where cult- our culture has evolved naturally over time. And now, though, we understand those processes of cultural evolution, and so we can shape them going forward. And we are starting to. And similarly, with language evolution, we now understand these processes, and we now have something like the Internet, which can... <laughs> drastically shape the hearts and minds of billions of people and so we can instead of saying eh language is just going to evolve how it evolves we can iteratively and you know intentionally uh, evolve it so this is you know applied language evolution and i think this is a big thing because language is just so so powerful and if you imagine this underlying substrate of language If we can iterate it to be easier to learn, better for society, more empathetic, then that will change our psychologies in this very powerful way. So that's the kind of the big picture idea here, and I definitely get Lauren's pushback, which is like, that's difficult, and that it is going to naturally evolve, and that even you know, Esperanto was created as this like beautiful language and now people are like messing with it and, you know, memeing it up or whatever. And that too will happen with this language evolution, but kind of, yeah, taking that as a given and, and still putting time, energy and effort into language change. So I kind of, so that's the idea. And I think that there are, you can kind of imagine it from kind of a multi-scale perspective where the, you know, we have posts on the internet, like a tweet. And there's lots and lots and lots of people who talk about, okay, should we, you know, censorship and free speech and things like that around these posts? How much should these posts spread? You know, does fake news spread 8x more than, you know, real news? How can we put, you know, friction on, you know, our our media ecosystem so that we, you know, create less white nationalism or whatever? And that's all good. I'm, I'm into that. But we don't talk that much about the language inside the tweets as much. So it's like, what, how should we think about, we're kind of like abstracting the whole post into a single thing, into a single entity, getting some kind of score around it, and then like up-prioritizing or down-prioritizing that versus working at the kind of the individual word level. So that's one way I think about this. And you can see it to some extent. We're already doing this with stuff like hashtags and how hashtags will exist within posts, but they still have their own kind of separate prioritization scheme. And yeah, so I think this is kind of what I'm gesturing towards. As a note on these hashtags, I think that there's that's still an area with tons of possible interesting iteration and evolution in that, you know, something like Black Lives Matter was, and I've written a couple posts on this, but Black Lives Matter was easily remixable or weaponizable into all lives matter and white lives matter and depending on your perspective here stuff like native lives matter or latino lives matter and so yeah i would expect us hashtags may be some of our first proto examples of how we can start to mess with language at the word level instead of at the instead of messing with posts and our information ecosystem at the post or tweet level yeah, I mean maybe one specific example of this is like upvoting the word they in a tweet. So if someone uses they and you're pro that as a thing, which I generally am, then you can imagine something where you're upvoting the specific use of they instead of the tweet as a whole. So that's that that gestures at what I'm talking about here. The other thing that gestures at this is just a variety of examples that exist today, which are you know, we have, you know, these words of the year are so important, I think, understand that they're such a sign of the times. And, you know, in the episode, we talked about both the social justice activist words of the year, like, you know, they, or my pronouns, or uh, being woke, or what have you. And then also the other kind of words of the year, which are connected to the internet, and post truth, and fake news, and things like that. And those words of the year, it's like, hey, could we what words of the year do we want to exist in the future? And I know that that's that's kind of you know, stating that too aggressively and saying, ah, we will make XYZ the word of the year, but also we could have a beautiful vision for what we want these words of the year to look like in the future. Do we want fake news to be a word of the year in the future? Probably not. Um, or that's a bad indication of reality. And so, yeah, and I think that bad indication of reality, I do want to talk about that for a second, which is that language is an example language is a manifestation of reality and reality is a manifestation of language as well and i think that my favorite example of this is the face mask emoji recently which ios changed to be smiling instead of sad and that's cool what they're trying to do is and that's just interesting because You can look at it as like some 1984 style stuff where it's like, oh, here's this, you must be happy in the mask, even though you're sad in reality. Or you can imagine it as like, oh, a mask wearing is good and mask wearing should be a happy thing. Uh, Or you can imagine it as just giving us more ability to emote ourselves with masks, you know, being happy or sad. And I, I bring it up right now because just like with, you know, something I was giving the example of fake news we can think of the words that we want to exist in society and start to, you know, iterate towards them. And those words will both be a manifestation of the actual moment and they will be where we're trying to head. Just like the smiley face emoji, the smiling mask emoji is a manifestation of the world as it is, aka people with masks on, and is a manifestation of where we want to head, which is a more smiling populace of happy people. <laughs> yeah, so that's um, that's some of the examples here. And, and we're just seeing so many, I mean, there's some other emoji examples of, I mean, emojis in and of themselves, I think are just, they are this applied language evolution idea where we are getting communities together to determine what languages or what emojis exist and which ones get on keyboards and stuff. And, you know, the kind of classic example of this is in 2016, Apple decided to use the water pistol for the gun emoji. They decided to use a water pistol instead of a gun. And that was very controversial at the time because you can imagine me on iOS sending my friend or imagine my friend on Android sending me a gun like I'm going to kill you. And I see it as a water pistol. It's like, oh, this is fun. Uh, And so there's lots of controversies there. And now everybody uses the water pistol instead of the gun. And that in and of itself, though, is this example of like, okay, do we want to give, just like, do we want to give white nationalists or other, you know, community groups the ability to, you know, create a subreddit where they can get together and do bad things? Also, do we want to give people the ability to, you know, do a gun emoji? And, or, or do we want to only give them the ability to do a water pistol? And again, this is just like the face mask one where it's like, We want it to represent reality, but we also want to gesture towards a more positive reality. So, yeah, it's tough, but but, but we're at a time of language change. I mean, there's so much language change happening with the George Floyd protests and, you know, new anti-racist language, and so I think it's all all interesting, and I think that, yeah, there are ways that we can uh, harness it for good. As one final example here, I mean, Esperanto, as much as it was a failed experiment, it is a such a successful experiment. I mean, it's 10 times faster to learn than many other languages. And it is, you know, I've seen uh, people using it in this beautiful way where just like we don't use a recorder when we teach recorder to kids, we don't use it's not like, Oh, you're gonna be the best recorder person in the world and people are going to, you know, listen to your recorder performance at Carnegie Hall. No, we teach it to them because it's helpful for them learning future languages. They're sorry, learning future instruments. And so too have there been studies and people have done this with Esperanto, where if you teach and the the, the most famous study here is um when people are teaching French to folks, they You could either teach French for all four years or you can teach Esperanto for the first year and then French for the next three. And actually, the latter was more impactful um, because if you learn Esperanto, you get better at learning languages in general and then you learn French. Even though it's for less time, you actually are better at it. The, The people in that group did better than the people who just learned French for all four years. So I think that there's a lot of space here for... A new kind of Esperanto or or the, the energies behind Esperanto to be applied to language evolution at this intersection of our information ecosystem and hashtags and emoji and the ability to be serious and take it seriously how our language evolves through time. That was really funny. I was just saying take it seriously. And my phone responded with Siri. <laughs> it was funny. Okay, sweet. So that's one point. Uh so I guess reach out if you're doing any of this work. I'm I'm really excited by applied language evolution. Okay, and the second big uh comment that I wanna say here is this amazing thing that Lauren was talking about, which is how um yeah, which is this uh sorry about that um uh, Lauren was talking about how language is this amazing signal for community, and that being in a community on the internet or being in a community not on the internet, you can signal with your clothes and with your hand gestures and with you know geographic location, all these things, but on the internet, it's like how do you signal to other folks that you're in the same crowd, and that is so much. When you start to, I love, I just, I had, I thought about that some, but not as deeply as Lauren had. And I think that seeing that, you can just see it all over the internet where intense subreddits have their own communities. And I'm, you know, I'm reading right now about um, white nationalism and, and intellectual dark web style stuff. And they are, they have this whole, language is a huge part of it. You know, this idea of an hero, this, you know, Keck and the Pepe the Frog and all these things are ways that they can all signal in-groupness and be with each other. And I think that just, I don't know the, you know, the answers here, but I mean, it makes me think of some other things like, you know, how apps are another way to signal to folks, you know, people signaling with Rome or Clubhouse or at hey.com email addresses, you know, or people signaling. I'm I'm reminded of Stuart Brand and how he has talked about following new language because new language is where new communities and new excitement is forming. And so, yeah, this is mainly just like a, ooh, this is really interesting to me piece. I think it is just a reminder for you and for me as we're looking on the internet to be aware of new language as they kind of show up and to understand what it signals both from a semantic perspective, but also that it's just purely signaling for a community perspective and that in and of itself is powerful. Okay, great. I hope this was interesting and goodbye.